May the Lord bless us all. Let us come together to read a Bible passage here from Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through verse 13. And this Bible passage is about the Lord's Prayer. And so just as we have just recited the Lord's Prayer, we will study what the Lord's Prayer is all about today. So in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through verse 13, this is what it says. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. When we read such scriptures, when we read the scripture here in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 through verse 13, what is it? What is it that we see? You know, oftentimes what we often see is we just often see a condemnation of repetitive prayer. Oftentimes what we see is we often see a condemnation of the Catholic Church because they too, they tend to recite the Lord's Prayer, just as, as like how we, as the United Methodist Church, and we as the local church, this is what we like to do. And Jesus, Jesus does talk about not doing repetitive prayer in here by saying that we are, we are, we, we must not keep on babbling like the pagans. And in that, he is talking about repeating things. But, but the message is much more deeper than that. I know many, I know there are some pastors out there that they will even use this passage here, these passages here, Matthew chapter 6, to say that when we sing songs, we are not to repeat a verse. We are not to repeat a chorus. But I think that if that's all that we get from the scripture, if that's all that we receive from reading these verses, we are missing the main point in which Jesus Christ is talking about here. Because even though he's talking about repetitive prayer, he's talking about reciting something over and over again to the Lord. What he is actually talking about is he's talking about reciting things, repeating things to the Lord that are just not genuine. He's talking about repeating things to the Lord that you have no idea what you're talking about and you're just doing so because you've been asked to. Or you're doing so just because it's been a tradition for you to do so. Or you're doing so because you find, you find that it makes you, it makes it seems as though by reciting certain things that you are looking religious to other people. 
And so the, at the heart of the matter is not so much that Jesus Christ is condemning us or that Jesus Christ is telling us that we cannot repeat certain things, but what Jesus Christ is really talking about is the heart of what we're doing. What, where is our heart? When we are reciting something, when we have something memorized and we're repeating it over and over again, what is the condition of our heart at that time? And so Jesus Christ, in these passages, what he is teaching us, is he is teaching us here how we are to approach our God. How do you and I, how do we approach our God as we take our prayers to him? As we bow our heads before him in prayer, we are approaching the throne of our God, our holy God, our perfect God, the God of all majesty, the God of all God, the kings of all kings. As we are approaching his throne, as we are approaching his presence, where is our heart? That's, that, that's, that's what Jesus Christ is talking about. Where is your heart? What is the condition of your heart? Is your mind set upon Christ? Or is your mind set upon the things of this world self? And so that's the reason. That's the reason why in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he, Jesus Christ was condemning those who were being hypocrites. Because they prayed for the whole purpose of looking religious. They were not praying to because they wanted God. They weren't praying because they wanted to approach God. They weren't praying through this relationship with God. They weren't doing those things. But what they were doing was they were praying because they wanted to, they wanted men to praise them for how religious they are. They want men to praise them for how knowledgeable, how pure they are. And, and that is what Jesus Christ was condemning. He says we are not to be like them. When we pray, we are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to spread, to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners because they want to be seen by others. They want to be seen by others. See, they were simply after the praise of men. And that is not how we are to pray. That is not how we are to approach our God, our holy God. A holy, holy God indeed. And then he goes on and he talks about babbling like pagans. And he's talking about just using these useless phrases that, like I said, are not genuine. That's the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is not about whether or not you can recite the Lord's Prayer. It is not about whether or not you can repeat the Lord's Prayer. And in the scriptures, it doesn't command us to repeat it. So we don't necessarily have to repeat it. However, at the same time, it also does not condemn us from doing it. And so many times as Christians, many times what we do is we make controversy out of something that we don't need to make controversy out of. But what we need to be careful with, though, you see, is that if we are repeating this prayer, if we are repeating a song, if we're repeating a verse, if we're repeating a poem, a chorus of a song, whatever it is that we're doing before our God, that we must, we must make sure that it is genuine before our God. 
we must make sure that we understand truly what that means. And so anything that we say before God, we need to look upon those words and study those words and make sure that it is a true, true reflection of our heart before we just go before our God. Because He is the God that sees us in private. See us when we are alone, you see. He sees us when we are alone. That's why, that's why Jesus says, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. Your Father, He's the one that sees you in secret. So even when you're saying these words to Him, if it's not genuine, He sees that. He searches for your, in, within your heart. And He sees what's genuine and what is not genuine. And so that's how, so Jesus Christ here is teaching us how we are to approach God. It is a matter of a heart that is genuine in the things in which we say. And so we always have to remember that prayer is something that we are to do as Christians. It is one of the most powerful tools that God has given to us to allow us to be able to approach God to approach His holiness, to bring our joys, our concerns, all to Him. And this is the heart of the matter. And Jesus Christ Himself is that example. He continues to pray throughout His life. It is a, it is a demonstration of His own dependency upon the Father. You know, there's been great men. There's been great men of the past. Great men of the past with tremendous and great academic achievements. But many of them fail. Many of them fail in their ministry. Many of them fail in life because they did not pray. Simply because they were men and women who refused to pray. Then there are other men, there are other men, all other women of the past. And they, they may not be the greatest they, have, they may not achieve the greatest when it comes to academic achievements. But yet, they moved mountains. They were able to move mountains with their faith. They were able to move mountains with the things that they did. And the reason for that is because they were men and women of prayer. Prayer empowers us for the ministry. Prayer empowers us for the faith. They're great men, great men such as Charles Spurgeon, A.W. Tozer. These were men of great prayer life. They had a tremendous, tremendous prayer life. John Wesley himself, John Wesley once said that he thought very little of a man who did not pray for at least four hours every day. You see, even John Wesley was a man of tremendous prayer. It is said that John, John Wesley would wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning and he would get down upon his knees and he would bow his head, his head before his Lord. And from 4 in the morning until 8 in the morning, for 4 hours, he would do nothing, nothing but pray. And he always believed that you start your day off by seeking God. And that's what he did. He started his day off by seeking God for those first four hours. 
And until he's able to pray, until he's, he's prayed, he, he will not move. He will not do anything. And later on in his life, it is said that later on his, in his life, that he would pray up to eight hours a day. But for many of us, for many of us, man, we can't even find 30 minutes to pray. We become so busy in our lives. We become so distracted in our lives that finding 30 minutes, 20 minutes here, maybe 15 minutes to pray, is so hard, so difficult for us to do. And perhaps that's something, perhaps that is a lesson that we can learn through this pandemic. Why? Because now, now our lives are being slowed down. Now we're not allowed to go outside anymore. We're not allowed to go anywhere anymore. We're not allowed to go to work anymore. And so what can we do? We can definitely, we can definitely use this time to really improve our prayer life. Use this time to take our joys and our concerns back to Him. To return back to the Lord in prayer. We can really use this time to build that up. And so what I want to do is I want to, to, to kind of to review or for us to go over the Lord's Prayer and to see exactly what it means. Because I don't want this to just be an intellectual exercise for us to memorize the Lord's Prayer, but I want it to be more than that. I want it to have a meaningful purpose for us. I want it to be something that we can utilize to approach the throne of God to help us grow in our personal relationship with Him at this time. And so to do that, we must understand what we are saying and how we can use this in our own personal life. And so I want to reiterate once again that the point of what Jesus is teaching us here is to teach us how to approach the living God. He's teaching us how to approach the eternal God, the God that created the sun and the moon, the God that separated day from night, the God that spoke. Through His Word, He spoke the world into existence. And so we see here, the first thing that we see here in this prayer, it says, God, it refers to God, and it refers to God as this, as our Father. So let's take a look at that word, our, there. You see, last week when we studied the Psalm in Psalm 23, we saw that David, that King David, was personalizing his relationship with God, which is an awesome thing to do. And yet, here in this prayer, now Jesus Christ is teaching us that, 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 that this God, that this Father, he doesn't only belong to us, but He belongs to all of us. He doesn't only belong to me as an individual, but that He belongs to all of us. And so we must understand that as we pray, as we come together to pray, or as we kneel before our God to pray, that through prayer it is meant to unite us. It is meant to unite us as a people. And we often hear people say that, you know what, Christianity, Christianity is only a religion for the Jews. Or Christianity is only a religion for Westerners. Or we will hear people say, Christianity is only a religion for Anglos. We hear all kinds of things such as these. But, but th that is not true at all. 
There is absolutely nothing true in those statements. And many times we turn Christianity. There are many groups out there that has made Christianity about race, about ethnicity. But let us know that there is absolutely no room in Christianity for racism at all. Because even by approaching the Lord, but even in approaching God, we are to understand that prayer is to unite us as one human race. And so in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, this is what the word of God says. It says that in Christ, okay, there is neither Jews nor Gentiles, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus, you see. Prayer unites us. And a man who prays, a man who prays is a man who understands the need for unity. A man who prays is a man who understands the need to bring everyone together. And this is the first and foremost important thing when we read the, the, the Lord's Prayer is to understand that prayer unites us by that very simple word that says our, our. It unites us. Romans chapter 3 verse 29 through verse 30 says, Is the God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? And then Paul goes on to answer himself and he says, Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised, that's referring to the Jews, by faith, and the uncircumcised, that's referring to the rest of us, through that same faith. You see, Paul is saying here that there's only one God. There's not many different gods. You know, Mongs don't have their own gods. Anglos don't have their own gods. Jews don't have their own gods. You see, Romans don't have their own gods. The Greeks don't have their own god. But we all have but one God. And there is only one God. One God who is the creator of all things, who is the creator of everybody. And he is the one that unites us. He is the one that brings us together to be one human race. And we see the racism, race, that race, race, the separation of race, ethnicity, happens way in Genesis at the Tower of Babel. And so the separation of race was actually a result of sin. And so through our Lord Jesus Christ and through this very easy, this very simple word, our, it brings us back together again. It unites us again. And so prayer, number one, is for us to remember that prayer unites us. And then it goes on and it says, Father, it says, Father. And this is the way that God has chosen, chosen to relate to us. You see, many times we see God as this distant God, that He created us and He just leaves us behind. We, many times we see Him as someone that's not involved in our own lives. In the Old Testament, they used to see God as just a judge and just an ex executioner. And even though God has that right to be, even though He can be that, and even though He is that, He has chosen. See, Jesus Christ is revealing God to us 
in a radical way during his time, in a radical, radical way, that you know what? God is not simply your judge. He's not simply your executioner. But he is also your father. And this is the way that God wants to relate to you. We often think of God as this, this distant God who is stoic, who is unemotional. And he's just sitting there waiting for us to do something wrong. And then he zaps us and sends us to hell. He punishes us. That's many times, that's the way that we often think about God. But Jesus Christ here, by using the, the word Father or Abba, or, or simply means Daddy. He's saying that, you know, even though God has the right to be your judge, the way that he has chosen to relate to you is he has chosen to relate to you as a father. And so we can find comfort in that. And yet at the same time, that's also something that often provides a big burden for us as fathers. Because many times our children relate to us or they relate to God through the way in which they relate to us. And so as fathers, we have to be very careful in the way that we raise and we relate to our children. And I often think about my own father as I try to reflect upon my relationship with God. And you know, many times I realize that from the most simplest of things when I was a child to the most complicated things, that my father was always there for me. From the most simple of things, such as just crossing the street, he would hold my hand just to cross the street when I was a child. He would show me the most simple things in life. He would teach me the most simple things in life. In times in which I got myself in trouble as a teenager, he would always be there to get me out of those troubles, to always find a way how to get me out of the trouble that I often get myself into. When I got married, my father was the one that helped pay for all the wedding costs. Today, he still lives with me. And today, he's the one that helps me babysit. And so, I realized that in, even in my relationship with my earthly father, that he is always there for me through even the simplest things of life to the most complicated things in life. And so it is the way with God. It is the way with God that God continues to be there with us. You know, at times when I do wrong, at times when I get in trouble, my father is the one that often disciplines me. He's the one that turns me to the right path, like what we talked about last week with the psalm. He turns me towards the right path. And if I listen to him, then I, I find the right path. But when I go my own way, many times I get lost. And so this is what my earthly father does for me. And so my heavenly father, he does the same thing and even more and beyond that. And so this is what, what Jesus Christ is trying to get us to understand here is that God relates to us as a father. And so when we say father, when we pray and we say father, what we are doing is we are acknowledging his love for us. But also at the same time, 
we're also acknowledging His authority over us. He has the authority over us. And we must not forget that. He is the one who disciplines us. And so this leads us to the term, Who art in heaven? Second part of verse 9 says, Who art in heaven? Or who is in heaven? You see, God, this Father, He is our Father, and yet He is sovereign over us. He has absolute authority over us. Being that He is in heaven, He sees the beginning to the end. You know, in the, in, in the Hmong culture, we have this saying that the parents are like, right? they are like the heavens to us. They are like the, the sky to us. And that we will never turn our feet and kick the heavens, right? We will never turn our feet and kick and rebel against the heavens. And that's what we must do, as we must never rebel, we must not rebel against our God who is in heaven. And being that He is in heaven, He sees all things. He sees the beginning to the end. You know, if we were to take a satellite, or if we were to fly a drone, if we were to fly a drone into the sky, and if we were to look down from that that drone down upon I-80. We would see all the traffic from one end to the next. But you know what? When you're going through that traffic, when you're driving in that traffic, you won't see that. But yet, if we were to fly a drone up there, you would see the beginning from the end. And being that God is in heaven, it gives us comfort knowing gives us comfort knowing that yes, He has authority over us, but at the same time, He sees the beginning to the end. And so by just acknowledging Him being in heaven, we're acknowledging His wisdom. We're acknowledging that God, we will trust in You. Even though we're going through a pandemic such as this, with this coronavirus, we don't know what the end is going to be. We don't know what the end is going to be. And yet, You are already there. Knowing that you are in heaven, you have already seen the end. You have already been to the end. And so we trust in you. We, we acknowledge your wisdom. We acknowledge that we are to trust in you and to follow your ways. We acknowledge that you are in control and you have absolute authority over all things, even this virus. You, God, you have authority over this virus and you can destroy it and you will destroy this virus once and for all. And it, go, and it goes on and says, hallowed be your name. You see, so not only does prayer unite us, not only does prayer acknowledges God and relates to us to God as a father and, and acknowledges his wisdom and acknowledges our, our trust in him, but prayer also is praising. It's about praising God. It is about praising God for who He is. Hallowed be your name. You know, we all tend to think of God from a very, very humanistic view. And the reason for that is because in most instances, that's the best way. And in many instances, it's the only way that we know how to really relate to God. And so early in my life, I often wondered why God needed and wanted so much praise from me. I, I didn't understand that at all. To me, it appeared to me that God was self-centered. You know, it appeared to me that this is self-centered and it is egotistic for a God 
to want this much price for me. However, however, the more I grew to know God, the more I realized that praising God isn't something that God needs. Because you know what? He is who He is, no matter what I do. My praise doesn't change God. He is who He is, no matter what I do. But praising God was something that I absolutely and I desperately needed in my life. And so by praising God, I realized that it turns my attention away from all the distractions that often surrounds me. And it focuses my mind on Him. It relaxes my soul. It eases my anxieties. It removes my own brokenness. And above all, it magnifies the joy that I have in the Lord. And so you see, you can see these prayers of praise throughout scriptures. David says in Psalms chapter 3, he says, You, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. Hannah prays in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She says, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. These are all prayers of praise. Daniel prays in Daniel 2. He says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes time and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with Him. What a beautiful prayer of praise by Daniel. And so there are so many wonderful prayers of praise that we can find throughout all of the scriptures that we can continually read about. We can continue studying. We can continue to study them and to adopt them into our own personal life as we pray. And so as we pray, remember to always praise God. Praise God. But this is not only about praising God, you see. But it is also about exalting his name. It is about exalting his name. This word hallowed. In other words, we, we often translate that to me to mean holy. Holy. And, and what it gives us is it illustrates this thing for us. And it illustrates this thing for us as though everything is inside a bag or inside a jar or whatever it is. That there's all these things, all these names, let's say all these names inside this jar. And so it illustrates to us that we are to reach into that jar and we take that name out of that jar. And we separate that jar. Because there is no one like that. You see, it's not, it's not telling us that, hey, today you're going to put God number one. It's not talking to us about making a list. Make, it's not talking to us about making a list of priorities as though, you know what, today God is my number one, and I will be number two, my wife is number three, my church is number four, whatever. This word hallowed here is not illustrating that point to us. But what it is illustrating to us, brothers and sisters, what it's illustrating to us is that we are to, that the, this name of God is, is separated from everything else. It is above everything else. And there is absolutely nothing like this God. 
You can't put anything next to this God. This God belongs in his own jar. He belongs in his own place. You can't put all these other names beside his name at all. That's how holy he is. He is sacred. That is how sacred he is. And it is about the uniqueness of God. We often, we often um, confuse the word holiness with righteousness. And all those, they, they are interrelated. Holiness has this meaning of just being, being different. Just being unique. And oftentimes when we think about the word of sanctification, it, it, it often relates to us the similar kind of, of idea of being separated from the world. Being separated from all things. And so when we say, hallowed be thy name, this is what we're talking about. This desire to exalt God. This desire to lift His name. The desire to understand and to acknowledge that He is above all things. That there is absolutely nothing, nothing that can be compared to this God. You know, in the Christian faith, many times we often say that we want to serve the church. We want to be in ministry because we love the people. Brothers and sisters, that is a good thing. That is a good thing to have in our hearts, to love people. But if that's the only thing that we have in our hearts, our ministry is not going to last long. Our journey in the Christian faith is not going to last long. Because people will disappoint you. People will disappoint you. They will turn against you. And at that time in which the people turn against you, at that time in which the people disappoint you, when the people fail you. At that time when they take all your stuff and they throw you away. They say, you, we, no, we no longer want you here, Pastor. We no longer want you here. What are you going to do? How are you going to find the faith to move on? The only thing, the only thing that you're gonna, that's going to help you move on, to move forward with your faith is if you have this desire within you to say, hallowed be your name. That God, above all else, even when the whole world turns against me, that's one thing that matters to me more than anything else. And that is for your name to be exalted. And that is for your name to be hallowed. That is for you to continue to be separated to be unique, to be above all things. And regardless of my circumstances, regardless of which, what situation I may be in, that that is the desire of my heart. That's how we continue in the faith, brothers and sisters. It's hard to continue in this faith if all we're in it is for the people. It has to be more than that. And this is what Jesus Christ is teaching us by this simple prayer. By this simple prayer that it's more than that. It's about exalting the name of God. And then it goes on and it says, Your kingdom comes. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this is verse 10. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10. This is the inv invitation of God's will into our life. It is the alignment of our will with His will. But more importantly, more importantly, I would just put this straight out to all of us. I'll just be blunt with this. 
This is the acknowledgement or the submission of your own will to God's will. Say, God, it's not my will, but I am submitting everything that I have. All these things, all these things that I desire, all these things that I want. I am sacrificing them, man. I am taking them, I'm throwing them away. And I am aligning everything, my passion, all the things that I have in my heart. I want to align everything with you. And so it is no longer about my will. Jesus Christ says, I have not come to do my own will, but I have come to do the will of the Father. And that's what we are to proclaim. That God, today, it is not about my will anymore. I no longer have a will. My will is dead. I am now dead with you. I am now dead with Jesus Christ. I no longer have a will, but it's all about your will. And may your kingdom, may your ruling, may your will come. May all things that you desire, Lord, may it come. May you rule over my life. May you rule over all, all, all the earth. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our communion with God. So you see, even before we ask for anything for ourselves, through prayer, we are already aligning ourselves with God's will. We are already submitting submitting our, our will and, and, and getting rid of our will and saying to God, God, this is no longer about us, but it's it's all about you. May your will come into my life. May your rule, may your authority come into my life. May you take over me. May my life be consumed by nothing, by nothing but your will, your desires, and your passion. And so even before we pray about anything else, this is what we are to pray about. About the will of God that comes into our life. And James chapter 4 verse 3 says that we ask and we do not receive. He said, you ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may squander it on your own pleasures. Many times we pray to God, we forget about God's will. Many times when we pray to God, we don't even invite God's will into our lives. But we're praying to, we're praying to God, God, you are to grant us our will, you see. You see, instead of saying, may your will be done, we said, God, this is our will, and you need to grant it. May our will be done. Your job is to simply grant us what we want. Your job is simply to grant us our desires and our passions. Many times in our prayer, that's the way we approach God. We see Him as a vending machine. And we're simply there and say, we want this. And so we press the button and we're supposed to get it. We go to the vending machine and we say, today I want Pepsi. And so we, we, we press Pepsi and the vending machine is supposed to provide us with that Pepsi. And we see God in that sense many times. And many times we pray, we, that's the behavior that we bring before the throne of God. That is the behavior that we bring before our God in prayer. We say, God, give us our will. Grant us our will. But Jesus Christ is saying, no, 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 no. Don't, th that's not the way to approach God. But the way to approach God is to say, God, your will. It is about your will. I am now, now I am aligning my will to you. I'm getting rid of my own wills and let your will be done. And so you see, even, even when we try to do good, one of the things that I find out in my own personal lives and the reason why we need this, the grace of God so much. It's because I realize that when I go out there 
And when I, when I go out there to give to other people, when I go out there to help the needy, to help the poor, I find that people praise me. And I enjoy that praise. I enjoy that praise so much that many times I am more motivated. I am more motivated in doing good to others for the praise of men than I am for the will or, or glory of God. And so even in my good deeds, even in my good deeds, I find that many times I sin against God. I'm taking away His glory. I'm taking away His, His will. I'm doing it based upon my own will. I want to do it my way, God. I want to do good, but I want to do it my way. And I'm taking away the will of God. I'm taking away His glory. And I realize what a wretch I am. What a wretch I am. And most of the time I realize that I am more motivated to do good by the praise of men than I do for the glory of God. And so even in these good deeds, like I said, I have sinned against Him. And so all I can do is say, God, thank you. Thank you so much for your grace. Because without it, I would not, I would never be worthy to stand in your presence. And so it is after aligning your will to His, after submitting your will to His, you are to then, you are then to proceed to ask for your daily needs. And these are daily needs. It says, give us our daily bread, okay? It's not talking about giving me, giving us this, this 24,000 square feet home, this 24,000 square feet mansion. It's not talking about that. It's not talking about giving me this $200,000 Lamborghini. It's not talking about that. But what it's talking about is it's talking about the basic daily needs that we need. And all this relates back to what came before it. Like, in other words, it's basically saying, God, provide for me. Even though I have all these spiritual needs, all these things that I want to do spiritually, that I also have my physical needs. And God, I need you to supply for those physical needs. The most simplest of things, the most basic of things, I need you to supply me for those, with those things. So that I can continue to do these things to proceed. I can continue to lift your name on high. I can continue to proclaim that hallowed be your name. I can continue to exalt your name above all names. To understand that you are, you are unique indeed. That you are, you are all by yourself. You are a class by yourself. That there is absolutely, absolutely nothing, nothing that is like you. And not only that, provide me these needs, God. Provide me these needs so that I can accomplish your will, right? Not my will, but so that I can accomplish your will while I'm still here on this earth. And so, so when we ask for the daily bread, it's, it's, these things are the basic things, the basic things that we need in our lives. It is an acknowledgement of, of trusting in God, knowing that God will be able to be the one to provide these things for us. But all these things, whatever God provides for us, is to be used for one thing and one thing only, to exalt His name. Today, you're going to be a business person. You're going to build a business you know what? Exalt God with it. 
Today you're going to be you're you're going to be a doctor. You're going to go into the medical field. You know what? Exalt God with that. Today you're going to be a lawyer. Great thing, great thing to have. Great goals. Exalt God with that. No matter what you do, whereas God provides you, use it to exalt God. That's what the prayer is all about. And many times, that's not our motivation. Many times we want these things so that we can show off. God, I want this, I want this $100,000 car so I can show it off. You see, it goes back to that Bible verse in James. We're not asking with the right motives. We're asking with all the wrong motives. And we don't, we don't receive because we ask with these wrong motives. And so the motive, the heart of the prayer is always for God's exaltation. It's always for His will to be done. And then it goes on. It goes on. And I, I think I've been going on with this for a while. But I'm going to try to end here, end it here soon. Um, then it goes on to talk about debt, forgiving our debts. Okay, Debt here is used figuratively to represent sin. It is a moral debt that we have towards one another. When we sin against another person, we owe them a debt. And at the same time, we owe God a debt. And this passage here is not stating that we need to earn God's forgiveness by forgiving others. That's not what it's stating. But what it is saying is that it is saying that your act in forgiving other people stems. It stems from the knowledge of your own realization that you need to be forgiven. When we, when we have this, when we understand this concept, when we understand this, it helps us deal better with controversies. It helps us deal better with conflicts. Because we understand that we need to forgive other people because we ourselves, we are in dire need of forgiveness ourselves. And so we, when we have that, 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 that view, when we have that belief, that understanding within us, it helps us deal with other people much better helps us deal with disagreements. It, it helps us become more sensitive to other people, the needs of other people. Even though sometimes you may disagree, even though sometimes your views and their views, the way that you see life and the way they see life may contradict with one another. But if you understand that you yourself, you are as in need of forgiveness as that person who has sinned against you, just, you know, needs forgiveness also and it allows you to be more merciful it helps you become more forgiving it helps you to become more merciful towards people it allows you to deal with situations and conflicts in a much much better way however what this does not mean it doesn't mean that it, it is not meant for us to distort the idea of mercy because oftentimes mercy mercy can often be misunderstood and when it's misunderstood, it can often be distorted to result in an injustice. And so we need to be very careful with that. We don't, we, we don't want to distort that. We don't want to distort the idea of mercy, the idea of forgiveness to result in injustice. Jesus, God forgave us on that cross. And we're going to talk more about the cross next week as we celebrate Easter. But as God forgave us, justice was also met upon that cross. So you see, mercy and forgiveness doesn't necessarily 
means that there is no justice. And so we have to be very careful with that. We have to be very careful that our forgiveness, that our idea of mercy, when we talk about mercy and forgiveness, that it, it's not a distorted view that results in injustice. You know, a young woman who was sexually molested by, by somebody, and the church told her that you can't be a Christian unless you forgive the person who assaulted you. That is a distortion of forgiveness. That is an example of a distortion of what mercy is all about. We're condemning a person for being sexually assaulted by telling her she's not a real Christian unless she's able to forgive right away. And so we need to be careful with that. We need to be careful with that and understand that forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't take away the need for justice. And then the last part says, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And I, I'm going to be quick with this. Just going to be quick with this. And this is just saying that God is not, you know, this, this, this is saying that we are to ask for God's protection. Because life is all about, life is filled with trials. It is filled with trouble. I think one of the greatest gifts that I have discovered in my life, one of the greatest things that I have discovered in my life, is that I have discovered that life is all about suffering. You know, before before I discovered this, I used to think that be, that, that 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 life is about you know, uh, you know, it's 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 about all these other positive things. But once I realized that life is about suffering, it really gave me a different perspective in life, because it helped me realize that. In my life, it helped me realize that what I need is I need the strength to go through these sufferings. I need the strength to go through these trials. I need the strength to go through these troubles. And that's what this Bible verse is talking about. It's not telling us that, that we're never going to face any trials. It's not telling us that we're never going to suffer in life. I mean, we would all love for life to be fair. We would all love for life to have no trouble, no trials, nothing at all. We would all love for life to be filled with just nothing but peace. And we, I get my own way all the time. And life be fair all the time. And everybody is, is, is equal all the time. That's what we all wish for. That's, all what, we, that's, that's what we all hope for. But that's not reality. Reality is that there are going to be troubles. There are going to be trials that comes our way. And during those times, all we can do is say, God, give us the strength and protect us. Do not allow the devil to get a hold of us during these times of temptations, during these times of trials. Don't let us fall to the devil. But please provide us the strength to overcome these things. And so, and then it comes on to that last, the very last part where it says, For thine is the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. And the reason why that's not in the scripture, okay? Most of, some of you may, may, have, may have already realized that when I read the scripture, that that part was not in the scripture. And the reason for that is because many of the earlier, earlier, uh, manuscripts that we have on record doesn't have that part 
Okay, because the Bible is, is translated from these manuscripts that we've collected throughout history. And so many of the earlier, earlier um, manuscripts doesn't have that line, that verse in it. The later ones do. The later manuscripts do. And so many of the modern, um, many of the modern Bible, as, as they translate this, they, they, they either, uh, they either leave that out, okay? They either leave that out and just just give you a little footnote at the bottom of, of the of the Bible telling you exactly what's going on, or they put that in and then give you a footnote too. So so either way, but most of them most of them will leave that out and just give you a little footnote as to why they left that out. That's because the early manuscripts, the earliest manuscripts that we have on record, doesn't have those um, that line. In the scripture and so you know I, I just want to end this by saying uh, to to all of us today that during this time when we are sheltered during this time in which we are isolated in our homes I want us to use this time to really go to the Lord for prayer see to it that you build up your prayer life during this time it's going to take a lot of prayers brothers and sisters it's going to take a lot of prayers for us to get through this pandemic but if we all turn to the Lord and go to him in prayer I'm absolutely confident that he will answer our prayers and that he will provide for us. And so as we end this, let us pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you for your message today. We hope and we pray that your message today will give us hope to be able to bring our joys and our concerns before you, to be able to bring our prayers before you. We pray that the message today will help us understand the purpose of prayer. The prayer is to accomplish your will, to surrender our will to your will. And so we pray for these things. We pray that you be with us. As we end this worship service, we ask that you continue to keep us safe, continue to keep us healthy. We pray that you soon destroyed this virus so that we will see it no more. And so at this time, we lift everyone up to you. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, I'll see everybody next week, and thank you so much for joining us today. God bless all of you.